And I hope you have a Bible. And if you do, uh, we'll pick up in a pretty easy place. Uh, if you were with us last week, John chapter 20, if you will open up uh, and just keep your place there. We'll get into God's word in just a few minutes. Uh, now, of course, we all know that uh, most Christians, I think, would agree that, particularly church members, uh, we all would agree that the two most important church services every year, uh, obviously you'd get the answers pretty quickly if you ask everybody, are Christmas and Easter. And we know how important these holidays are to our faith. And naturally, the gatherings on those two Sundays should draw our focus and our gratitude and make us be even more um, kind of uh, expecting and, and, and anticipatory. You know, we sit up a bit straighter on those Sundays. We listen a little bit more intently. Uh, we sing louder and more passionately. Uh, and we determine in our hearts that we might receive and respond to the message accordingly. And we should on those two Sundays. And you know, when I was on your side and a part of the church, still am a part of the church in that way, I would always imagine that pastors uh, must put double the effort into the messages uh, in Christmas and Easter seasons uh, because the pressure is on them to articulate and communicate the importance and the gravity of those Sundays and what they represent. Uh, because really our entire faith is encapsulated in those two Sundays and really every other Sunday takes their you know, inspiration from those two monumental days and, and again, what they mean. Everybody should walk out of church in December and in the spring with no questions or doubts about what the incarnation and what the death and resurrection of Jesus are all about and how important Jesus, of course, is. So the goal for a pastor, I always thought and still think and agree and believe, you know, a pastor's goal on those two Sundays and in those seasons, it's not to blow people's minds away or reinvent the wheel, but it's to simply preach and teach the scriptures what they say about Jesus so that everybody uh, is motivated and welcomed uh, to follow Jesus with their whole heart and trust him without anything else on their minds. Now, when I got on this side of things, uh, it, it dawned on me that that's really the goal every week, not just two times a year. That's the goal every Sunday. And it's always my goal to rightly handle the scriptures so that the spirit of God, who is the one who does all the work so that he might invite and edify every hearer in the house, invite someone to believe for the first time, invite someone to believe again, edify that one that is you know, seeking the Lord, asking him to show them the way in a particular area of their life, that the goal every Sunday is to invite and edify. If you call me on Monday and say, hey, what's the goal for next Sunday? It's that I would uh, deliver God's word in such a way. And as a teacher, preacher, anybody that, that holds God's word and speaks God's word, you in your own daily lives, our goal should always be to invite people to trust in God and edify those that have trusted and God. And, and you know, there are a lot of different potential hearers in the house on any given Sunday. Uh, Jesus said, those that have ears to hear, let them hear. There's a lot of different hearers in the house even today. And who knows what the Holy Spirit might be wanting to do, whether it's save somebody, deliver somebody, renew somebody's faith or reaffirm somebody's faith. And I believe that uh, his goal today is one of those four things for you, to save you, to begin a relationship with Jesus, to deliver you from something that's holding you back to renew you and your lifelong commitment to God or, or reaffirm you and make you, remind you and encourage you to keep on pressing on. That that's the spirit of God's goal every Sunday to save, deliver, renew and reaffirm 
And by all means, this is my prayer, my purpose on any Sunday, especially the major Sundays. But clearly, clearly, certain Sundays and certain seasons demand a little extra attention. We all agree and we all admit that. And we also probably have detected the opposite though. Uh, Because for every major super relevant Sunday gathering that we anticipate or are encouraged to give our attention to, there are those gatherings that maybe we wonder, is there really anything significant for here, for me here today? Uh, Is there anything that I need to focus on or be open to or be extra sensitive to today of all days. And, and, and for some, this might be every Sunday that's not Christmas and Easter. Let's just be honest. I mean, hey, you know, what's, you know, what's significant about those other 50 weeks of the year? And, and, and a lot of us, you know, there's other days that are important that we might give our attention to. But if we're being honest, um, a lot of Sundays may feel like just another Sunday going through the motions, listening and singing and, and kind of walking out, hoping there's something that we can retain, but maybe not experience expecting to have that much on our minds afterwards. And of course, there are those personal seasons, situations that you may face uh, that mean a lot to you, but maybe not to somebody else. Uh, And and maybe a trial that you're facing or uh, a decision that's looming, uh, a personal calling you're wrestling with, uh, a situation at home in your professional life. Uh, and, And if you factor in how many of us gather in any given local church on a Sunday, every Sunday turns out to be super important for somebody even if it doesn't feel that way for everybody. Because when you consider everybody's unique place in life, uh, we're all bound to be coming up against something that's causing us to be extra interested and eager to worship God and lean into his voice. Now, as your pastor, uh, this is the part where you probably expect me to say, and and I should say, that we should always be super tuned in to God. And uh, of course, who knows what he might reveal to us? And who knows uh, that we may be at a crossroads that we didn't realize until we, you know, are right there on the the edge. And maybe we're about to come up to that place. Uh, And and, and I believe as a pastor, and this is kind of my, you know, MO for preaching and really life, that proactive devotion is always better than reactive devotion. The same reason why you do things proactively at home because it'd be better to be prepared to to not have a fire start than to put a fire out. That's kind of how it works, right? It'd be better to have tires that are good or are are ready for the road than tires that may blow out any minute, right? Proactive is always better than reactive. That's a life lesson that, you know, you can go to work tomorrow and say, I learned something at church for once. It wasn't really spiritual. And, And again, this is spiritual. Proactive worship and proactive devotion is better than reactive devotion. And in the same way, inquisitive Christians, Christians that are seeking and looking and open to what God might be saying to them, inquisitive Christians are more prepared than indifferent Christians. And, and I don't mean that to insult anybody, but a lot of us were kind of just, yeah, I'm here. You know, I, God might say something that's special, but I'm not really expecting it. But when we're inquisitive, when we're interested, when we're focusing that extra little bit, we receive something that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise picked up on. Now, as much as this is true, as much as it drives me in my ministry, every gathering and opportunity to speak because it could be life-changing for somebody, for everybody. Uh, It's easy for some weekends to fall by the wayside in terms of reverence we give them and anticipation we have for them. Uh, And maybe uh, the Sunday that suffers the most, uh, more than those summer Sundays that seem like they're just in the way of us and a day outside. The Sunday that probably suffers the most, if you could poll everybody and say, you know, what's what's the Sunday that there's the most come down or it's just the difficult, difficult to get enthused about? It's probably the Sunday after Easter. 
Now, there's so much build up for Easter, extra services, extra attention, extra focus all around, and, and there's no reason acting like that isn't the case. Uh, the whole month is all about, you know, building up to the resurrection and building up to what Jesus did. And, and you know, once it's over, it's like something clicks off and it's just, well, I'm just kind of back into normal devotion mode. And I think that it's more so difficult the week after Easter than the week after Christmas because Christmas leads into New Year's. And that is all about reviewing and reflecting and resolving and looking forward. But when it comes to Easter or the week after Easter, it's kind of like we're all left asking the question, what comes next? And we've already went through all the biggest, the most important Sunday of the year, the most important Sunday in history. So it's kind of hard for the week after to not feel like you're just kind of, you know, wondering, just going through the motions. I mean, Jesus died for our sins. He's raised back to life. He offers us salvation. And if we've digested that and unpacked all that and, and we went in deep in the Easter season, what can we possibly talk about next that demands that kind of attention, that carries that kind of weight? And I mean, I know, I know, and I've, I've, I've felt the prayers. I know that all of you have been worried sick about me all week and maybe other pastors, but especially me. I know you've been worried all week about, you know, what's he gonna talk about? I mean, he preached four, five times in one week a couple weeks ago. I mean, there's nothing left. There can't be anything left for him to talk about. I'm sure you've all been worried about me, about what I might have to say next because I'm, you know, I, sometimes I run out of words. So I appreciate the, the concern and I hate to confirm your worst fears, your worst fears. Uh, if that's your worst fears, then you're living a charmed life. I hate to confirm your worst fears. The whole introduction has just been one attempt to stall everything that that's about all I have, that uh, Mother's Day is coming soon. So maybe we'll have something to talk about then. But uh, as far as anything new or anything special to talk about, um, I guess all I can really say is Jesus is still risen. And if you missed him last week, he's still, he's still here. So maybe you can, you can talk to him and maybe something good will come out of that. But if you want to go back and listen to last week's message, uh, maybe we can play that and I can just stand up here and try to lip sync it. So um, we'll just have a word of prayer and we'll just call it a day. So you want to pray with me? No. Did I fool anybody? Is anybody really thinking that I'm out of words? Maybe somebody, somebody at home is probably thinking, man, I would really check the box. So, so y'all know me better than that, right? Turns out, turns out the week after Easter may just be, and of course I'm going to say this, may just be the most important Sunday of them all, or the week after Easter may be the most important week of them all because, because our posture, our attitude, our ambition today reveals how much of an impact Easter has had on us. And if we turn our attention to what the Bible reveals about what happened in the immediate aftermath of Easter, we reveal that, we realize that the story of Jesus, the movement of Jesus, it was just getting started. And what actually becomes so very clear post-resurrection is that the aftermath of Easter, and this may be a little bit, maybe a little bit controversial, the aftermath of Easter was actually a much more urgent and crucial time than anything that came before it. Because there was never any doubt whether or not Jesus was going to fulfill his mission. There, there was never, nobody in heaven was wondering, I wonder if he's going to stick with this. I wonder if Jesus is literally going to go to the cross. I mean, we don't know if we can depend on Jesus. He might flake out halfway through this or right up against the ending of it. I mean, there was never a concern whether or not Jesus was going to finish his mission. And the gospel confirms again and again, reminding us that Jesus was resolute on his mission. For example, 
Jesus says on Palm Sunday in John 12, now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Of course not. This purpose is why I have come into the world. I, have, I was born for this. He looks at Pilate when he's on trial, hours away from dying, and he says, Pilate, God has put me here for this reason. You think you're in control? I'm in control. I was born for this cross. So there was never any question whether or not Jesus was going to finish his mission. But as soon as Jesus was raised, the question became, will his followers now step up, accept, and fulfill their mission? We'll get to what that mission was in just a minute, which is in turn our mission, if you're wondering. Uh, but there was one problem with the premise of this question in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection. Will his followers step up? The problem was he didn't have any active enrolled followers immediately after the resurrection. Yes, there were some sympathetic ladies that went to the tomb to anoint the body, but they found no body when they got there. They were expecting a stone. They were expecting a dead Jesus. Yes, there were some sympathetic uh, mourning women, but when they realized Jesus had risen, they weren't chomping at the bit, uh, ready to begin the next phase of what he planned. And as for the famous disciples, well, that's all other story. But Mark 14 tells us that when Jesus was arrested, they all left him and they fled. And they didn't come back for the cross. And they didn't come back on Easter morning expecting him to walk out of the grave. They left and they were done. And even after Mary and the other ladies reported the empty tomb, they were not thinking resurrection, they were thinking robbery. As in they thought somebody took the body. And even after the angel told the women to tell the disciples, hey, he wasn't in the grave, not because he was raw, his body was taken, he walked out of the grave on his own. He's alive. And when the women told the disciples what the angels told them, this is their response, Luke 24. These words seemed like an idle tale. And they did not believe them. Now, we don't know if they were all gathered together when Mary and the others went and told the news. Maybe they were spread apart and they went and told Peter and James and John and all of them individually. But we know that after hearing this news, something very strange happened or something very interesting happened. After they heard the news that Jesus was no longer in the grave, though they didn't believe a resurrection happened, after they heard the news that the tomb was empty, that it calls them to band back together like the good old days. It calls them to get back together, but not for the reason you might expect. Again, they didn't believe a resurrection took place. They thought that his body had been taken. And the assumption caused them to have a sinking feeling. Because when Judea and the Roman governments found out the tomb was empty and the guards had been knocked out, you know who they would instantly imagine had pulled off this kind of stunt. Of course, they would blame the famous followers of Jesus. And that's exactly what the disciples thought. Surely Jesus, that's exactly what Rome and the government thought. Surely the, the disciples of Jesus stole the body to make it look like he came back to life. But as we've seen, the disciples had zero confidence in a resurrection. 
but they were confident that the people that plotted to kill Jesus would target them next. And they, they had the reason to, to, to obviously be afraid. And that's why they fled the scene. That's why Peter denied knowing Jesus when he was on trial. That's why they were laying low now because they feared the authorities would come for them next. And now his body was missing. And now his tomb was empty and they were in complete panic mode. So they banded together to wait the days, weeks, however long it would take for Jesus' body to turn back up and for them to be cleared and taken off the most wanted list. So on that first Easter evening, the former followers of Jesus had bunkered themselves away for fear for their lives. And that's where I want to pick up the story because, because it's in this moment that the men who had unfollowed Jesus are made aware of God's plans for them and God's calling over them. But remember, they unfollowed for a reason. Even though, even though Jesus had finished his mission, whether or not they would accept their mission was still in question. And after what happens next, there should have been no question whatsoever regarding what their next move would be. But John 20 verse 19 tells us what happened next. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so Easter Sunday, when the doors were shut, and the Greek word is the doors were locked where the disciples were assembled, and, and, and some, something must have clicked in John's mind. Even all these years later, writing about it, they, they, couldn't name, they couldn't say where that location was. It was a secret place. Even all those years later, he referred to it as where they were assembled. For fear of the Jews, the Jewish councils, the Jewish religious leaders, the Jewish authorities. So why were they were together? They weren't together worshiping or celebrating. They were together scared. So they were together on the same day, on Easter Sunday, in a place with the door locked. And what does John say? Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. When, they, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I, I bet they were. Now, everybody automatically assumes that Jesus just passed through the walls like a ghost to get where they were locked away. But this text is emphasizing his physical body, right? He has physical scars. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. So I don't think he came through the walls. You, you say, well, how did he get in? He came through the door. Yeah, the door was locked, but when has a locked door ever been able to hold God out? How'd this story begin? In chapter 20, verse 1, he rolls the stone away. And in verse 19, he opens a locked door. Seems like a pretty similar theme there, right? So here he comes, ready to connect the dots, because of what they just witnessed, the culmination of three years of, of his ministry, his death, and now his resurrection— with what comes next. So he's about to show them what should be their next move. Because Jesus' resurrection wasn't just the finale of his earthly ministry. It was the catalyst. It was the beginning. It was the pilot of his earthly movement. But his movement would require and would live and die on his followers being catalyzed this was Jesus' first step in re-recruiting his former disciples to turn his unfollowers into followers once again and turn them loose on the world. Verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. 
So I think they're in a little shock. They're glad, but they're still shocked. Like, what? You just walked. We had that door barricaded. I mean, we had nails and we had locks and chains. You just walked through the door. Like, I mean, how did this happen? We, we thought you weren't, we, we thought for sure that your body had been stolen, but you really are alive again. And, and he does not cut to the chase. He doesn't explain. We know, I'm sure they had questions. I bet all of them were asking questions. Jesus, what happened? What happened when you die? How'd you come back? But he immediately goes into, leadership mode, commission mode. Peace to you. So let's get through the small talk. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So hey guys, missed y'all. I'm so glad you were expecting me. I told y'all I'd come back. I'm so glad y'all were waiting for the tomb to open. But no, you were hiding because you were afraid and you didn't think I was actually alive. So we'll go, we'll get past all that. I got a message. I got a mission for you. As God sent me, I am sending you. And when he said that, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit, and he gives them a preview of what's going to happen in full in a few weeks. He anoints them by the very spirit that raised him from the grave. And this is his word over them, uh, over us even. Uh, those that have followed him to Easter, this is where he's leading us in the aftermath. And our response, our readiness, our eagerness either confirms or calls into question the resurrection's impact on us. So as straight as we sit up on Easter, as specially in tune as we are on Easter, we should be even more focused today and every day that follows Easter. Because our response, our readiness and our eagerness determines whether and confirms or questions the impact of the resurrection on us. And, and verse 23 is very big. And I'm going to explain this because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea because I, I think Jesus is pretty clear here, but I can see how it could be taken out of context. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, this is big. I think what Jesus is saying here, clearly he died to forgive sins. He alone forgives sins. He died to forgive sins. He died to wash away sins. So I think what he's saying here is that you, you guys, you heard me preach for three years. You know why I died. If you listen back to the tape, if you read Matthew's notes, you know why I died. You know that I was always gonna come back from the grave. I know you were overwhelmed. I know you were you know, you know, know, completely taken by surprise when all of it went down like it went down because you were thinking something else was gonna happen. But I told you this. Matthew, Mark, Peter, John, you've all got the note. You've got the transcripts. I told you this was gonna happen. I died to forgive the sins of the world and you all are best in position to realize why I came, why I died and how I came back. And it's on you to spread this message, to spread this movement, to build this movement, to be this movement. And the only way the message of grace and forgiveness and salvation and eternal life is going to be spread is through you. Do you see what he's doing here? Think about the pressure that's on these guys now. He says to them, if you withhold the message from the world, then you withhold salvation from the world because you alone know why I died. And you know that's how people can be forgiven. And you know that's how they can be freed. And if you withhold this message you withhold salvation from the world. Do you think it dawned on them how big of a statement that was? Does it dawn on you how big of a statement that is? Because the same is true for us. 
That if we don't preach the gospel, if we don't put into practice the virtues and values of the gospels, then we withhold the good news from the world. And either they receive the message through us and are forgiven, or they don't receive it and they aren't forgiven. I think that what this does more than anything is it causes us to step back and consider what we've been blessed to know, to experience and receive, and it forces us to be honest about the impact that Jesus has had on us and is having on us. And the proof is in what we do with what he's done for us. He went to the cross to buy our pardon. He went to hell to ensure our freedom. He raised the place, took the keys. He rose again to bring us back to life. To receive his forgiveness, freedom, and salvation is to be sent on mission for him. To be saved is to be sent. To be saved is to be sent because salvation immerses us in the kingdom of God and it compels us to build the kingdom, to live for the kingdom. To be saved from the world, but to live for the world calls our profession into question. We are saved by Jesus and we are saved for Jesus. He had died and came back for these men. He was determined to wake them up to what was offered unto them. And it was all brand new for them. So he's putting it together for them in front of them. Now, obviously they had unfollowed. They had not believed. And now maybe they were gonna be convinced. We don't know though. We haven't read the rest of the story. But the reason why he comes back to these men is the same reason why God did not give up on Adam when he blew it in the garden. He didn't give up on Noah when he blew it right out of the ark. He didn't give up on Abraham when he kept on sinning and kept on unfollowing and stumbling. God could have used somebody else, but he didn't want to. He was committed to those that he had chosen. Do you hear that? God could have started over after Adam sinned. He could have found somebody else after Noah and Abraham failed. He could have picked somebody else when Jacob and Moses and David all blew it, but he didn't. You know why? And I, what that really tells us more than anything, God's persistence towards rebels and quitters and sinners should cause all of us to recognize the true nature of his invitation and our opportunity. He could have given up on us, but he chooses to be persistent with people who are rebellious and who quit and who sin and sin and sin again because he loves us. And God is not gonna give up on us even when we've given up and quit on him. And the fact that he goes back to these very men who should have been waiting for him with a run, we know like a football game with a, with a banner for him to run through when he came out of the grave. They should have been there, but they weren't. Jesus makes it clear to these men how sacred the task at hand was. They weren't done being rebels and quitters and sinners yet though. They weren't ready to say, rah, rah, Jesus, we're back on board. But thankfully, Jesus wasn't done being persistent either. Now, we can't be too hard on them because this was all new for them, but we can allow their responses and how God deals with them to steer us in the right direction because we have the hindsight that they didn't have. We have the hindsight they weren't privy to. They're living this out in real time. So in John 21, we don't know if this was a week later or two weeks later. We know it was sometime in the 40 days after Easter. In John 21, in a world where the disciples have yet to respond to Jesus. Now, I can't emphasize that enough. They listen to Jesus in 19 to 23, and they don't do anything. They're back in that same room the week after, scared to death. 
They still haven't moved. They still haven't said, okay, okay, God, what should we do? They still aren't budging. They still aren't believing there's something more for them. They're glad that Jesus is back and they're glad that he saved them. And hopefully that means they're gonna go to heaven when they die, but they're not about ready to, to work for him. They don't think that's really on them or important to them. So a week or so later, John 21 takes place. Now the text doesn't explicitly or overtly tell us that they hadn't responded to Jesus, but contextually, it's hard not to imply that. So 21 verse one through three. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples and the word there is revealed as in they didn't realize what he said the first time. So he was having to do it again. He revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. Now that's the Sea of Galilee. They were in Jerusalem and they went back to where they came from. That's a big key information point. They went to the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, way up north in Nazareth. And this way he showed himself. So Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, and two others, John forgot who they were, I guess. <laughs> two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we're going with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat and, they, and that night they called nothing. A couple things here. First, we're told that Jesus reveals himself again. This encounter has a couple of layers. He reveals himself by the sea. First off, you can't really reveal yourself again unless of course the first time didn't stick or the impact just didn't register. And I guess the case was that he came to them previously and they acted like, or they responded as if it never happened. That's why he would preach the same sermon again and again sometimes because it was like they didn't register it the first time. So it wasn't that his presence wasn't impactful, but they did not react the way they were supposed to react. So Jesus, persistent as ever, re-reveals himself. And I don't think John's use of the words reveal himself again was only in reference to the previous chapter, but remember how Jesus first met these men by the sea of Galilee after a long night fishing with catching nothing. So I don't think it's a coincidence that this story is sort of a deja vu for them. So here, here we have it. After unfollowing Jesus and after an indifferent response to his return, they revert back to who they were before they ever met him. They're back living the lives they were living before they had ever met Jesus. Do you think that's insignificant? Do you think that's not trying to jump off the page at us and get us to realize that something was not yet right with them. Not only are they back doing what they did before they met Jesus, but they're having a similar experience. They caught nothing. Now we know what the message is here, don't we? And if it's not super clear, look at verse four. But when the morning had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Now, we don't know if he pulled some mind trick on them or if he was wearing a cloak. We, we don't know, but they didn't recognize him. They were far off from the shore, so maybe they, did, they couldn't see it was him, but they weren't expecting him either. They weren't looking for him, that's for sure. And, and this is really, if you ever wonder if God has a sense of humor, this is really good. And I don't know if we can really, this has ever really been brought out before. Then Jesus said to them, and they don't know it's Jesus, right? Children. Have you any food? So this random stranger, according to them, is on the shore and he says, children. I mean, they're grown men. Children. Something wrong? Now, if you dig, dig into the Greek, and this is what I love doing, especially for things like this. The word he uses there is little ones, babies, or someone in training. 
It's a pejorative you would use to somebody who was trying to do something, but they weren't doing it well, or they're still using training wheels. So Jesus says, hey, babies, hey, little ones, hey, training fishermen. Now, these guys were professionals, right? They ran a business, or they used to. So Jesus is kind of nagging at them, kind of prodding at them. Can you imagine how they felt when a strange man makes fun of them from the shore? And they, 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 you know, they knew they were not having a good night. He didn't know, but apparently he did. Now, we aren't going to read the whole story because most of you know where this is going. But if you don't, Jesus offers them some advice, similar to what he told them all those years ago. Verse 6. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. He said, hey, y'all, hey, babies, y'all who don't know what you're doing. I know you don't recognize who I am, but why don't you try the other side of the boat? Because I think I, I, I heard, and again, this, this could all be taken as an insult or you know, taunting them. Hey, you should try the other side of the boat. So it says they cast their net and they were not able to draw in draw it in because of the multitude of the fish. So the net was so loaded down that they couldn't even lift it up. And all of a sudden they start thinking, who is that guy? And John, you know, wipes his glasses off and he uses a little telescope and he realizes it's Jesus. It's Jesus. The right side, they had been looking on the wrong side in the wrong place. After this, they realize it's Jesus. Peter immediately is embarrassed. Not because he was bad at fishing, we all know that at this point, but he was embarrassed because he knew what Jesus was doing. He knew he was responsible for leading this group to a different mission when he could have been leading them doing what he had called, been called to do. He leads them to the place they had been taken from, they had been saved from, they had been called away from. Jesus approaches them and impresses them again and again. And, and, and when they get back to shore, Jesus says, hey, can I have some fish? And they're like, at this point, they realize Jesus is just kind of playing a game on them and they don't know what he's going to do, but they give him the fish and Jesus starts cooking breakfast and they go along with it. They're sitting there and Jesus says, y'all don't know how to fish, y'all can't cook. I got to cook. So he's cooking fish and they're sitting there thinking, man, what is going on? So Jesus hands Peter a plate of fish, forces him to eat it with him. And then in verse 15, when they'd eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, Remember before you were Peter, you were Simon. So if you want to go back on the sea, you want to be back in the fisherman world, you want to be back before you met me, I'll call you what you used to be called. Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these, more than these fish, more than this former life of yours? Do you love me more than these fish? And Peter says, Lord, Lord, I know what you're doing. You're never gonna let me live this down. But yes, I love you. And Jesus says, doesn't look like it. I, yeah, you can say you love me, and you know we've went through this, Peter. But what are you doing here? But it's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, you heard Jesus for years talk about what he had come to do. You saw him give up when he was arrested. You saw him, you know, lay down his life. You, Peter, you denied knowing him. You watched him die, and then, and then, you saw his empty tomb, and you still didn't believe. You denied his resurrection. You went and hid for fear of your life. He comes through the locked door. He shows you his scars. He commissions you to go and tell the world about what he has done, and your first instinct afterwards is head back to Galilee and start fishing again as if you had never ever met him come on Peter this is what you do next I mean has the last three years not even happened to you did it not register to you what has just happened right in front of you Peter are you serious so 
do you love me more than these is a legitimate question, isn't it? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? They just witnessed all of that and they go about their lives as if Jesus' will for their lives wasn't the most important thing. Can you imagine? Can you believe they would do that? Yeah, you can. Can't you? I can. We all can. Because are we any different? Are we? Let's be honest. There's, let me be honest. There's, there's a lot of reasons why I often feel like, oh man, Justin, you ought to not be so rigid with this. You go easy. But why? To, to make us feel better about disobedience and indifference and wasting our lives? To, to make us feel better about choosing and prioritizing less inferior and insignificant lifestyles? I mean, come on, they had just received an invitation to participate in God's kingdom and they treated it like an excuse to do whatever they wanted. Come on. The reason why we don't, we can see it, we imagine it because we're no different, aren't we? Aren't we all the same? Now, thankfully, Jesus wasn't done pressing them and preparing them. He stays on earth for 40 days because apparently it took that long to get them to surrender to the mission. 40 days of showing up in unexpected places, reminding them and preaching to them and, and, and coming to them. It took him 40 days. And it wasn't really until after he was ascending to heaven that they finally, finally got it. Turn a page or two to Acts chapter one. Because it's the very next part of the story. So Luke introduces us to the story. And then down in verse six, this is the last time Jesus got with them before his ascension. So 40 days later, probably about two weeks after that sea story. Verse six, he says, or Luke says, when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So after all of that, telling them, I send you like God sent me. This is our next step. This is our next plan. Go into all the world. Their response is, well, Jesus, I mean, we know why you came. Didn't you just come to set up heaven on earth? And can't we just go ahead and get that started? I mean, can you believe these guys? They're completely tuned out to what God has called them to do. Can we just fast forward to the end? Because, hey, we're saved. That's all that matters, right? There's 120 of us in Jerusalem that believe in you. That's all that matters. That's enough people to have a party with forever. Plus Moses and all the dead guys. I mean, hey, we can have a party. That's good, right? All these other people who, yeah, sorry. And then Jesus says, hey, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you. But you. Now, they, had, they were glad. They were glad that Jesus had done all this for them. They were happy to know they were going to heaven when they died and they were hoping to see heaven come to earth so they didn't have to die. But as for the whole, as God sent me, I send you. As for the whole go to the world part, that wasn't for them. They would rather, <laughs> they would rather go fishing. Hey, we're glad to go to heaven someday, one day, but not today. As far as living for heaven, living for the kingdom, I mean, one day we'll go there, but that's not on us, God. I mean, we're, we're okay. Can we just speed this along? 
In verse 11, but you shall receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Guys, have I already not made it clear to you? You are on a mission and you are gonna go to the whole world. When, they had, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men, the two angels from the tomb, two men stood by them in white apparel and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in a like manner as you saw him go. Apparently, this was what finally caused it to click. Jesus' final words, watching him ascend and leave this mantle on their shoulders. It dawned on them, finally, they could not resist. They could not escape their destiny. They'd be foolish to. They'd be unfulfilled doing that. So if you read the rest of Acts, and we'll get into it in a couple of weeks. If you read the rest of the story, they spend their lives going and proclaiming the word and through word and deed, preaching the gospel, living every day with a priority for the kingdom of God, leveraging every opportunity for him. It, It wouldn't be easy for them. In fact, they would all suffer and die telling the story of Jesus. They could have lived out their days in the comforts of Galilee, but something in them could not settle for less. And aren't you glad they did not settle? aren't you? Within 350 years, the very Roman empire that killed Jesus and persecuted this church for most of that period would officially endorse Jesus as the one and only God, endorse Christianity as the one and only way to God and vow not only to promote Christianity, but protect it and fan its flames to the ends of the earth. In 380 AD, the emperor of Rome issued a decree making a proclamation that Christianity was now a sponsored faith of the Roman Empire. There was one faith, there was one God, there was one way, and Jesus is the way. The very empire that tried to kill Jesus and his movement was changed from the inside out. And you want to know how the proclamation began that Emperor Theodosius issued in 380 AD? It is our desire that all the nations should continue to profess that religion which was first delivered to the Romans by the apostle Peter. But what if Peter had never refollowed Jesus? What if Peter had just continued living for Peter? What if all the disciples had just kicked back and thought, well, we've got our tickets to heaven, time to eat, drink, and be merry until it comes? Can you imagine how dead on the vine the church would have been? Church, what are we doing with what's been done for us? You say, Justin, is it really about us though? Isn't it just about them? They're the disciples. It was on them, not on us. I mean, I guess we can play that game, but if we're gonna say that all the stuff's contextual, then we can't claim the promises that we claim. Romans 8, 28 and Philippians 4, 13 and 19, and they're great promises, but if this stuff was not for us, then that stuff isn't either. We know better, don't we? If we've been raised with Christ, we ought to seek him in his kingdom. And if we aren't seeking, if we aren't seeking, we are the opposite of resurrected. We're sinking. We are. So what happens after Easter? Well, that depends on how you respond to Easter. That depends on how I, how we respond to Easter. 
We've got a lot to unpack in the weeks to come, but I think what we ought to do in response to this is begin praying a simple prayer and take baby steps. To prepare our hearts and hold our hearts accountable for what God wants to do in us and through us so that we might begin to see that this applies to us. And then we might begin to realize that maybe we've put the wrong things in front of Jesus. And if we're, on, if we're accountable to continue this mission like they were, and if it's on us to do what God called them to do, and if it was on them and everything could have been different if they weren't faithful, then what could the world look like if we would be faithful? So I wanna lead us in a prayer. I'll read the whole thing and I want you to read it with me, respond with me. This is just the beginning of resyncing and reprioritizing our hearts so that we might take this as crucial and urgent as they did. God, I believe Jesus died for me and in his resurrection, I have a new and better life. Can, can we say that together? God, I believe Jesus died for me and in his resurrection, I have a new and better life. And say this with me. I want to make the most of it. I don't want to waste or miss anything. Continue, Lord, if I'm ignoring or avoiding your will, if I'm devoted to the wrong things, open my eyes and show me what needs to go and what needs to start. Here's my heart. Have your way and show me the way. And we know the way, don't we? Christians, we have been given such a great blessing. We have the keys to the kingdom. And with that knowledge and blessing comes tremendous accountability and responsibility. And if you're not a believer, this is what God's inviting you to. He wants to save you and he wants to enlist you into his kingdom. He does not want to just pat you on the back and say, I'll see you later. He wants to change your life and direct your life. And if you are a believer, what are you waiting for? What are we waiting for? The aftermath of Easter depends on what we do with Easter. And if we have got the promise of heaven, then we must prioritize and proclaim heaven. The aftermath depends on it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this very important day. Thank you for what Easter means to us, but may we not miss what the follow-up is all about. May we not miss the aftermath. And Lord, of course, we'd rather be doing what we want to do. That's our flesh. Of course, we've got a life that's so busy and we've got so much to do and so many things we can't say no to. I know all that. We all, we all know all that. You know all that. But it comes down to what is most important. And are we willing to begin looking at our lives and begin to consider what needs to go and what needs to start? And if the whole thing has to come down, if the whole house has to be rebuilt, then it's worth it because we can't afford to miss this opportunity. It changed the world once and the world today can be changed only through the follow-up, the aftermath of what your church does with your resurrection. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.